Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. Students have arrived at their halls and another freshers' week is underway, the first since 2019 not to be affected by COVID. But while in America, Joe Biden has just cut tuition repayments for low and middle earners, there's no sign of any shakeup for the graduates who pay a hefty chunk of their salary to the student loans company. £9,000 might be worth a lot less than it was a decade ago when fees were last hiked, but that's part of the problem. Universities say they just can't break even and do research under the current system. Meanwhile, some institutions are investing in beautiful new buildings, while others are at risk of going bust. So where do those fees go? Joining me is Nick Hillman, who's the director of the Higher Education Policy Institute. He used to teach history and was a special advisor for the former Conservative Minister, David Willits. Welcome to the bunker, Nick. Thanks very much. Nick, you were partly responsible for the rise in tuition fees that proved so terminal eventually, among other things, for Nick Clegg. Before that rise, they were just over 3k and then they almost tripled to £9,000. What was the rationale behind that very big hike? Well, it was a very different political time to the one we're living through now. All the political parties at the 2010 general election were committed to really big public spending cuts. And all of them had said some areas of government spending, like schools, like pensions, would be protected from those cuts. So all the areas that weren't protected had to take even bigger financial hits to help the ones that were protected. So the coalition came into government in 2010. And like every other political party, both the Lib Dems and the Conservatives were committed to big cuts to the business department in which higher education sat. And and higher education spending was actually one of the very biggest bits of the business department. And then they decided, probably quite rightly, to protect science and research funding. So some of the business department's budget was protected. And the other bits, which is essentially further education and higher education, had to take a really big hit. And there were three ways that we could have saved substantial sums of money on higher education. One was just to have fewer students. And we thought that would be absurd. Employers are crying out for more high-level skills and people are desperate to go to higher education. So we thought that would have been absurd. Another way would have been to have just spent very much less money on each student. I personally was very opposed to that because I went to university as an undergraduate in 1990 when that is exactly what had happened throughout the 1980s. And I, I literally had lectures 
at the University of Manchester, where there were more students on the course than there were seats in the lecture hall. And the staff-student ratio had got out of kilter, et cetera, et cetera. So we felt the only thing we could do, because we didn't want to cut student places, and we didn't want to cut the amount of money spent on each student, was to ask graduates to pay back more of the costs of their education through the existing loan scheme that Tony Blair had set up. You know, that's still in place, but we just elevated all the numbers. So as you say, it went from a bit over 3,000 to 9,000, and the cap is now 9,250 and has only gone up once since 2012. And there were fears that that rise would put people off going to university, but that didn't happen, did it? Yes and no. So there, there absolutely were fears. I mean, there was a famous opinion poll by the National Union of Students, for example, that suggested way over half of students just wouldn't go in future if the fees got to those sorts of levels. For young school leavers, that absolutely did not happen. We kept on having record proportions of young school leavers applying for university and going. But look, let's be honest, there is one bit of that policy that didn't work well at all. And that is where it came to part-time students. And what we did was fees for part-time students also increased, but they were given access to the student loan system on the same basis as full-time students for the first time. But the part-time student numbers did fall off a cliff. And that, I think, is because your average part-time student, your typical part-time student, is at a very different point in their life to your typical 18-year-old school leaver. And the fear of really substantial debts did put off those potential part-time students. So lifelong learning, in effect, the idea that you should be able to go to university or go back to university was hit quite hard. Yes, especially when you add on top of our policy, a policy the previous government, the Labour government had introduced called the ELQ policy, the equivalent and lower qualification policy that said you couldn't access student support if you already had a degree. And a lot of part-time learners are people who are looking to change direction or you know, simply didn't work out for them first time round. And so when you add together our increase of fees on top of the Labour government's ELQ policy, it was a combustible mix. I mean, other people would say, look, because more people are going full-time at the age of 18, there are just potentially less, fewer good potential part-time students in society anyway. But I personally wouldn't overdo that argument because there are lots of people who missed out on higher education first time around or who want to reskill and retrain. And of course, life expectancy is going up as well. So we're spending longer, each of us in the labour market than our, than our parents and grandparents did. Now, of course, that was 9k in 2010. We're now 2022. And that was anyway a standardised fee because some degrees naturally cost a lot more than others. It costs a lot more to train to be a doctor than it does to do an English degree, for example. How far does that 9k go now? Is it really inadequate as far as universities are concerned? So it is a standardised fee. Pretty much everybody charges £9,000. But it wasn't really meant to be because 9000 now 9250 is a cap, not sort of the figure you have to charge. There are still, I was at one yesterday in Reading, actually, the University College of Estate Management. There are still a few institutions that charge less than the maximum 9250 but essentially everybody rushed straight for 9250 and for good reasons that money goes on students education universities are not in the main profit making entities 
they're reinvesting that money in student support services, buildings, teachers, you know, um, lecturers, teacher and learning facilities. And is that money enough now? Well, vice chancellors, and I was at the university's UK conference in Leicester the other day, where they were all gathering, they will all tell you the first thing they will tell you if you say to them, how are you getting on, is they will say, I am really worried about the financial position of our sector, because on average, universities now lose money on teaching home undergraduates. They do get extra money, you're absolutely right, if they're teaching engineering or medicine or something like that. But often that extra money from government on top of the 9250 is not enough. And increasingly, the 9250 is not enough to teach other subjects where it used to be plenty. You know, back in 2012, let's be honest, you could easily teach a history degree or an English literature degree or sociology, classroom-based subject, for slightly less than 9250. But there was some cross-subsidy from those subjects to more expensive subjects. Now, on average, they are losing money on home students. And that is tricky for a university. They have to decide, do we close a course or two? Or do we ram more students into that course, even though it'll be a less good student experience on a sort of economies of scale basis? Or do we have more international students who pay much higher fees? Or do we you know, let the estate get a bit tatty, cancel that new building we were going to build, maybe make it harder for students to access counselling because that costs money, maybe shorten the university library opening hours. All those sorts of things are on the long list of possibilities. And for more desirable institutions, let's say the ones that are often recognisable from abroad, the decision is often to go down the route of more international students, isn't it? Because you can charge them far, far higher fees. I was writing about this a few months ago. And it is they are in the case of science, it's quite stratospheric. I'm amazed that they can get that money, but it seems to be working. Yes. And also with the pound changing value, that keeps changing, you know, the relative cost of or, or cheapness of coming to study in the UK relative to other countries. But you're right. Look, if you're let's let's go to an extreme end. Let's go to Oxford and Cambridge. Oxford and Cambridge colleges don't want to get any bigger than they typically are. And they have the same financial challenge that other institutions have, though some of them have nice endowments as well. And so they have to think, if we don't want to get any bigger, are we going to offer more of our existing places to those high fee paying international students and take fewer Brits? Some other universities want to keep on growing so they can take more Brits and more international students. But you're right, this year's this year's entry round has been very interesting because it's been harder for school leavers to get into what's called high tariff universities, the ones where you need lots of UCAS points to get in, than usual. And I don't see that changing, by the way, because every one of the next 10 years, we have more 18-year-olds than the year before, well, at least up until 2030, up until the end of the decade. And I don't see members of parliament as being desperate to vote for increases in tuition fees to ease the financial position of universities either. So they are in a bit of a bind. So is it fair to say that British universities can't educate all the people who are qualified to go to them and wish to go to them because they simply can't afford it with the current way that it's funded? Well, they can't deliver the sort of education 
they have been delivering if the money keeps being eroded by inflation. On the other hand, universities are very resilient institutions. And if a university is told, which is effectively what is happening now, you've got less than 9250 to educate each student because 9250 this year is worth less than 9250 last year with inflation at about 10%. They will try to muddle through. But it might mean, as I say, your essay's coming back later, less good access to counselling services, the buildings becoming tatty, a worse staff-student ratio. They will do absolutely everything they can to go on delivering for their students. In the whole history of higher education in the UK, no university has ever yet gone bust, which shows you how resilient they are. It doesn't mean, of course, none will ever go bust in the future. But what I worry about is it could mean a less good student experience. You know, when my son goes to university in 2030, if he goes, it could be a whole lot worse than it is now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Of course, there are people in the current government who would be content to see universities go bust. We know that one right-wing think tank, the IEA, which currently has a great deal of influence on conservative thinking, has suggested that they should be allowed to go bust. Do you think that could happen? Well, I think the IEA might be a bit more out of fashion this week than they were uh, before last Friday. I don't, by and large, think that could happen because while at a theoretical level, if you're an uber-free marketeer, you sort of think failing institutions should just be allowed to go to the wall. A university is generally an institution with thousands of students, sometimes sometimes, you know, well over 10,000 students, you know, dozens and dozens of thousands of students sometimes, hundreds, actually normally, again, thousands of staff. And very often, they are the single largest employer in an area or the second behind the NHS. So, you know, when we approach the next general election and the current party in government, the Conservative Party, want to stay in government and want to hold on to some of those seats in the north of England that used to be called red wall seats, well, lots of them are towns and cities with universities of the sort that we're talking about that might be struggling financially. And if a university is the local biggest employer and bringing tens of thousands of students to the city that spend lots of money there, and some of whom stay there and deliver skills for local employers, you know, they're not going to vote for a party that lets that institution fail. So I, I, my personal view is any university of a really significant size probably 
is too big to be allowed to fail. You could change the management, you could change the governance, you could force it to merge with another institution. There are all sorts of other things you can do between forcing it into bankruptcy and simply subsidising you know, what currently exists. Thinking about staff, there has been a lot of unhappiness in recent years among university staff. They have gone on strike repeatedly. They plan to do so again. They complain about cuts to their pension schemes, and especially for younger staff, very insecure contracts. Do you sympathise with that? Yes, I do. We have ourselves published two pieces of work during the COVID crisis based on freedom of information requests to universities about the degree to which staff are accessing counselling and other support services through the university. And we saw a really big increase. So yes, everybody knows there's a student mental health crisis. There's also, to a certain degree, a mental health, really big mental health challenge among university staff. The pension issue is a very difficult one. And as you say, the trades unions are currently balloting university staff and they might be out on strike Again, I I would regret it if we got to that position because I think that's really bad for students. But I do understand the challenges staff face. For me, by the way, for me, I think the biggest challenge is younger, early career staff who have yet to be on a permanent contract, who can be expected at the drop of a hat almost to move to a different university, which is very hard. If you're at the point in your life where you're trying to settle down, maybe buy a house, maybe get married and have children or something like that. If, if you haven't got a secure job at your existing institution, that is very challenging. And, and I hope they're happy in the next 12 months or so. We'll be doing some a really detailed bit of work comparing the terms and conditions of university staff to the terms and conditions of other professions so we can have a more evidence-rich debate about this whole area. Let's think about the students who are accumulating, of course, vast amounts of debt, not just tuition fees, but also living costs and the cost of living going up so much. You wrote recently that students perhaps aren't quite as savvy as they should be and aren't budgeting as well as they should be when it comes to things like accommodation. Tell us a bit about that. Yes. So I realise these are sensitive areas when you're talking about people's personal finances. But I visit schools and I speak at lots of conferences full of the sort of people who give advice to people in year 12, year 13 on their way to university. And one thing I'm always very struck by is that young people typically, typically, obviously on average, not not everybody's the same, typically put a lot of thought into what institution they're going to go to and what course they're going to do. So in my case, you know, I went off and did history at Manchester, for example. But they typically put much less thought into where they're going to live and what sort of accommodation they're going to live in when they get there. And I think they should put just as much thought into that because it is where you live that determines your social life at university, really, who you're going to meet with, who you're going to go out with. And there are well-designed blocks of student residences and poorly designed blocks of student residences. And one mistake that a lot of applicants make, in my just my personal opinion, is they they try to live in the most expensive accommodation they can reasonably afford because they think that'll be the nicest. 
you know, an ensuite bathroom, maybe things like that. In my view, if I was applying to university again, that is absolutely not what I would do. I would look for the student accommodation with the best social areas, the places where it's easiest to meet other students. And I wouldn't care, frankly, whether I had an ensuite bathroom or not. Most 17-year-olds don't have an ensuite bathroom at home. Why do they want one when they go to university? I don't I don't completely get that myself. Because if you go for a slightly cheaper room, you'll have more money for a good social life as well. So clearly students come from very different backgrounds. Some have a lot more disposable income than others. But the most important thing is living in a place where it's easy to meet other students, particularly if you're the sort of person who takes a bit of time to warm up in a social event. With all the reshuffles this year, I was looking up who was the current universities minister. And I discovered that we don't currently have a universities minister. Uh, The role is now part of the parliamentary under the secretary of state job with skills and further education as well. Can we assume that it is not a priority for this government? What can we gleam about the direction of this government so far, which obviously has been so consumed by the cost of living crisis and the mini budget and firefighting those? Can we tell anything about the way it's going to go? And in particular, whether there might be any changes to student loans, perhaps maybe even a graduate tax one day? Well, I don't know if you heard me sighing as you were asking your question, and I was sighing not as you, <laughs> but I was sighing at um, the thought that I hope your question is wrong, but evidence is mounting to suggest it is right. So when I worked for David Willits as the university's minister in the coalition government, he attended cabinet. You know, He was a minister of state, which is the second highest type of minister, excluding the prime minister, and he sat round the cabinet table. And his boss in our department, Vince Cable, also sat around the cabinet table. So you had two government ministers with responsibility for universities sitting at the cabinet table. We now have, we've just discovered, as you rightly say, that Andrea Jenkins, the new minister for skills, doesn't have higher education in her title. She is a parliamentary undersecretary of state, as you said, not a minister of state. And she doesn't attend cabinet. I wish her all the best in what I think is the best job in government. And I hope she's able to make a mark and I hope she finds it rewarding. But she is doing so. She's pushing pushing water uphill, if you like. You know, she's doing so in a less propitious environment. And one of the reasons for that, and this gets to the second bit of your question, is, you know, rightly or wrongly, politicians think about the sectors of our community that tend to vote for their own party. And most universities are in seats, you know, in cities, and cities tend to be represented by the opposition party, the Labour Party in Parliament. And the current party in government gives, you know, when it's thinking about cost of living, it's thinking about hard-pressed working families more than it's thinking about students. And that's why this year's maintenance support package has gone up by just over 2% when inflation's running at over 10%. So students are, are, are getting much less worse off fast. And that's really worrying because it could lead to an increase in dropout rates this year. We have a de facto graduate tax, really, in the form of the student loans company. But of course, it only applies to recent graduates. It feels just straightforwardly unjust that I should have paid off all my university debts many, many years ago. And that people who are at university now or university recently are saddled with these huge debts, which amount to an extra income tax. Does it strike you that way? Is it time for a graduate tax which would apply to everyone 
who has a university degree? Well, I, I think it's a bit more complicated than that because, for example, in years gone by before student loans existed, the basic rate of income tax was much higher. So a lot of this stuff was being funded through general taxation. And then politicians of all political parties decided that graduates, the half of the population who are lucky enough to go to university, should contribute towards the cost. And you're right that they're taking on huge debts. But remember, currently, and this is going to change next year, but currently, about half of those student loans are never paid back. You know, the taxpayer picks up about half of the value of student loans because the repayment rules are fairly generous. They are being toughened up next year, and people from going to university from 2023 are being expected to pay back even more. But look, this is going to be a live issue between now and the next general election because the Labour Party, who are currently, of course, very far ahead in the polls, they say we stay committed to our manifesto commitment in 2019 to get rid of tuition fees. But they haven't said what they're going to replace tuition fees with. And a lot of people think they probably will replace them with a graduate tax. And the problem, by the way, of charging a graduate tax to every graduate is there is no national record of of who graduates in the UK are. And also people could avoid the graduate tax by doing things like going to a private university or leaving the country afterwards. You don't pay tax to the UK government if you work abroad. So there are some implementation challenges with the graduate tax. But I do think between now and the next general election, we're going to be hearing those words a whole lot more. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We know it's a difficult time for a lot of people and the bunker is, of course, free. But if you'd like to donate to help us carry on making podcasts, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. We'd be delighted. I'm Ros Taylor. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>